today on Ag News Daily. The way I see it is whatever happens, happens. You got to take it one day at a time. It's, it's really out of our control. We can't control the weather. Good afternoon, everyone. Ashton here with Mike and Delaney. I had a pretty eventful morning. I don't know about you guys, but I did a little bit of traveling for today's interview. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But Mike, I know you have some news for us. So why don't you kick things off? Yes, Ashton, I do have some news. Unfortunately, I was wrong about the CFAP program and its payout. I don't know if I misread the, uh, the original USDA you know, announcement or if my brain just wasn't working, but uh, I was reading through some clarifications, some guidance that the USDA issued yesterday. And uh, basically, there is a pretty big correction I need to issue. So when we discussed it yesterday, I said payments were based on 50% of 2019 production or amount in storage, amount of that covered commodity in storage on January 1st. That is not the case. Basically, the way the program will be paid out is it is the lesser of 50% of your covered commodity that is or what is left in storage. So basically, the way to think about it is if you harvested everything in you know September, October, November, and you sold it all off the combine, you have nothing left in storage on January 1st, you get nothing from CFAT. If you harvested 100,000 bushels and you still have 60,000 bushels of corn, say, in storage on January 1st, you will get paid on the lesser of 50% of your fall harvest or what is left in storage. So in that instance, you would be paid on 50,000 bushels. So if the, the big correction here is if you marketed everything prior to January 1st and you have nothing left in storage, you will not receive any payments. This is only going, the payments will only be on what is in storage on January 1st if you still own, theoretically. Although we don't know how they're going to verify whether or not you own crops that have been over contracted and not yet delivered. So there's still, we're still awaiting some guidance, but that is the big correction. Okay, got it. That makes sense. Glad you uh, issued that clarification point too. Yeah, I'm glad I was, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the heck I was thinking. Oh, well, that's okay. At least we've gotten it fixed and somewhat cleaned up. But I know Ashton is working to reach out to Undersecretary Northey as well or in some other USDA or top-level folks who can hopefully add a little more clarity to this whole issue for us too. Perfect. I think they are still kind of waiting on information as well. So it's going to be one of those things where we're kind of chasing our tail for the next well, I would imagine week or so before we start to really get some details on all of the facts and facets of this program. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to kind of add an extension or an update from a news piece you talked about, or you and I both kind of mentioned yesterday on the podcast, looking at wheat's big move, specifically the Chicago contract yesterday had some pretty big moves. I think it closed about 15 cents on the day. Um, And there were Apparently, a couple other rumors that I don't believe we mentioned on the podcast. And again, these are just rumors, but I wanted to mention them because if they aren't just rumors and they are indeed true, it could change a few things for our wheat producing friends. On Tuesday, there was apparently rumors of Chinese interest to buy U.S. wheat, followed by Wednesday, yesterday, rumors of Russia lowering their new crop production. Somewhere in the 
range of about 5 million metric tons of U.S., excuse me, of Russian wheat are rumored to be potentially taken out of production. And so perhaps the market was trading on some of that news yesterday. Again, just a rumor, but uh, was reading some analyst commentary today and saw that and thought, oh, maybe that's worth mentioning on the podcast today. Absolutely, Delaney, and I'm glad you brought that up because I also have a wheat rumor that uh, kind of came out of the woodwork yesterday. I learned about this morning from our friend Joe Camp over at AgriVisor, and that is it is rumored yet again that some of the Black Sea countries, Russia in particular, possibly the Ukraine, might be looking to put export curbs on their wheat. Again, uh, remember they've gone on, we have uh, maxed out Russia's export allotment. They might be willing or they might be looking to extend those export restrictions into the future, which again would drive more international buyers into the U.S. market. So yeah, all of those things came together yesterday on top of the cheaper dollar. And yeah, we saw we moved to the upside. We certainly did. Ashton, I know you had some news to share with our listeners today. Bring us up to speed on what you're watching. Of course, last night as I was scrolling on Facebook, I shared some of this on my private um, Facebook account, my personal, I should say. Um, And it's just a screenshot of somebody's Twitter post. And it says um, that global carbon emissions dropped 17% during COVID-19 lockdowns. And the caption is, guess who never stops during lockdown? American ag. And so I just thought that it was interesting to see how much carbon gas emissions have dropped down while we've kind of been in a lockdown state around the world within the past couple of weeks. And I just thought it was worth bringing to the table in discussing um, what agriculture contributes to global gas emissions. Yeah, which has been, we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast. Time and time again, we show that ag is not the problem and we continue to see People in D.C. and elsewhere who don't really have a real perception of agriculture continuing to point the finger at us. And this data, I don't know if it's going to be used for anything, but it obviously shows agriculture is not the problem. Well, you know, there are a lot of causes of pollution, a lot of causes of greenhouse gas emissions, to use the the scary technical phrase. But, um, yeah, I mean, people driving less, that's definitely a huge contributor of uh, particularly air pollution, like uh, various nitric oxides and all those sort of things that come out of the tailpipe of even a modern vehicle. And yeah, I'm driving past a field of the cows right now, and there's no smog over the cows. The air is still very clear over these cows and beautiful young calves on green grass in rural Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've got a little piece of news here. It's actually a very, very little piece of news, but it could spell good things for ag markets. Robert Lighthizer, U.S. trade representative, put out a statement earlier today that he is encouraged by China's buying. He says U.S. US trade office is still under the impression that China is going to do what it needs to do to meet the responsibilities of its phase one trade agreement. So, you know, we've kind of gone back and forth on that here on the podcast discussing, all right, we've seen China make moves that maybe they're still they're still buying pork. They might they bought corn. They might be buying some more beans. Well, Robert Lighthizer, whatever his sources are, seem to believe that China is still willing to play ball, which I thought was encouraging. It certainly is. Another thing that's pretty encouraging is the USDA is, in fact, 
making a billion dollars in loan guarantees available to help to quote help rural businesses meet their working capital needs during the coronavirus pandemic. This is a guarantee to apply for loans dispersed through the CARES Act program. And so essentially it was a portion of funds that will be specifically geared towards people who own businesses, including farms, I believe, who live and work in rural America. So nice to see that they're guaranteeing some funds specifically for our people. Absolutely, especially given the concerns that we've got with lower cash receipts, lower commodity prices. I've talked to a number of bankers, well, and lenders, I should say, over the past three weeks who are really getting concerned about working capital levels out here in farm country and what that might do to farm bankruptcies once bankruptcy courts reopen. So maybe we can get a lifeline out there and stem the tide on some of the catastrophe that is uh, developing out in rural America. Absolutely. But Mike Ashton, do either one of you have any other news before we chat commodity markets? I have one piece. And uh, this I thought was interesting. It is something we've talked about quite a bit. And that is shipping ethanol to China. For the first time in a really, really long time, the shipment of U.S. ethanol is headed to China. Uh, this is a shipment of 9,000 tons of ethanol. It's expected to dock in China uh, to the middle of next week. The weird thing is, this is not ethanol that China purchased from the U.S. We talk a lot on this podcast about global trade and how global trade can sometimes be strange. And I think this is a great example of how global trade can be strange. This is a cargo of ethanol that was purchased by Oman, the country over there in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Uh, believe it or not, we actually ship a decent amount of ethanol over to the Middle East, and they blend it with gasoline and do other things with it. They buy it cheap from us, and they blend it with their cheap gas, and they have cheaper gas. Well, Oman apparently bought this cargo of ethanol. When the coronavirus hit and ethanol prices really collapsed, they, for whatever reason, retendered it, basically put it back up for sale, and the Chinese ended up buying it. So this is ethanol that made its way from the U.S. Midwest over to the Persian Gulf. Rather than being unloaded, it has now been transshipped from the Persian Gulf over to China, so thanks to that roundabout way, we're finally selling American ethanol into China. 9,000 tons, not a huge amount, but hey, it's something. It is something, but definitely not something that moved the markets for today. What do you say? Should we hit the markets? Let's dive into it, Delaney. Starting off here with the July corn contract, it finished lower on the day just slightly with the July contract, down a penny and three quarters to close at 317 and three quarters. The September down a penny and a quarter to close at 321 even. Soybeans are the big loser today. There was some speculation I was reading about what's going on there, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more in an upcoming Market Monday episode, but the July contract on the day lost 11 and three quarters cents to close at 835. The August, excuse me, the November down eight and a half to close at 845 even. In the wheat pits, the July contract up two and a quarter cent to close at 516, while the September up three and a half cents to close at 518 and three quarters. Hopping over into the livestock markets, live cattle complex, June contract up 40 cents today to close at 98.80, the August up 60 cents to close at 98.22 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, mixed trade on the day as the May contract 
closed up two cents to close at 126.02 and a half. The August down 12 cents to close at 128.87 and a half. Lean Hogs had some pretty decent moves today with the June contract closing up $2.47.5 to close at $59.35. The July up $1.37.5 to close at $57.17.5. Looking over at the Class 3 Milk Futures, the May contract shed $0.09 cents today to close at $12.20. The June down $0.09 cents as well to close at $17.62. Before we get to today's interview, I'm also going to include the cotton prices because it is very timely and fitting with what we're talking about in today's interview. The July contract shed 15 cents to close at 58.06. The October down 15 cents as well to close at 58.37. Now, Ashton, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast today, you were out and traveling for today's interview. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you chatted with today? Of course, I traveled to Floydata, Texas. It's about an hour outside of Lubbock. Um, this town is known for their pumpkin farming. But today, as you said, Delaney, we are talking about cotton with my friend, Braden Campbell. He is a fellow Red Raider graduating in August. And he brought me on the tractor today to talk to me about his first season planting on his own land and a little bit more about what he expects in the future. I'm flying solo here today with my friend Braden Campbell. He is a fellow Red Raider graduating in August, getting a degree in animal science. And we're out here on the tractor. He is planting some cotton. Um, Braden, why don't you give us a little bit of background about your involvement in farming and all that fun stuff? Well, uh, my family's been farming for multiple generations and uh, I've been helping my dad ever since I was a little old enough to drive the tractor by myself, really. So uh, it only fit that I came out and started doing this on my own. So you said you've been doing this, you know, since you could drive a tractor. Um, when did you decide that this was what you just wanted to do for the rest of your life? Oh, it was about a year and a half ago, uh, going into Going into college, I had no idea what I wanted to do, whether it be farming or find a desk job somewhere in the ag, in the ag industry, but uh, I got offered some land, so I figured why not make the best of it and do what I can to, to keep the little tradition going in our family. So you got a little bit of land. It's your first year farming. Have you seen any struggles or any side of the industry that you haven't seen before now that you're out on your own? Well, uh, growing up, I knew we didn't have a lot of water because we're, I'm not going to say on the edge of the aquifer, but we're, <laughs> we don't have very much water. And uh, I didn't really get that until I started watering my own stuff. And uh, everybody talks about cover crops, and now I see why it's so important. We don't use as much water and stuff like that. And uh, of course, the price drops. It's been, Cotton used to be at a really good price. People made a really good living off it. People still do, but it's just not like it was. People used to sell cotton for over a dollar a pound and we're sitting at 67 cents at the best. I think that was the average for last year. So, I mean, it is what it is. You can't control it. So I've just got to make the best of it. So you talked a little bit about cover crop. Um, for those of our listeners that aren't too familiar, and myself included, I'm a livestock girl. Can you just explain to us a little bit about cover crops and why they are important when you're 
farming cotton or anything else? Uh, cover crop is, uh, the cover crops we plant are wheat, we plant some milo, and that's just, it helps keep the, the soil intact and helps uh, hold water better than just plowing everything and letting all that water seep back down. It, it's really helpful in the, you know, the wind blows here in West Texas and that cover crop keeps the dirt from blowing on our farms and dirt will kill cotton faster than anything. Back when I was growing up, cover crops weren't a big deal. And uh, now I think the younger generation's really taking advantage of the idea of it. And even the older guys are kind of realizing this is really helping save what little water we have along with keeping us from running sand fighters and rotary hose every every time we get a big rain. But the cover crops are definitely the way to do stuff now in our situation here on the Panhandle. So you being yourself a young farmer, you mentioned younger generations interested in using cover crop more. Are there any other techniques or anything that you're wanting to introduce into your own place here that you might not have used growing up? Like I said, uh, like you said also, cover crops are a big deal. And uh, last year there was a farmer that went in and put liquid fertilizer through his planter that feeds the bugs and microbes in the soil to help the crops grow better. And uh, this year alone, a couple of my buddies are doing the same thing. It's expensive, but their projections, it's paying off in the long run. They're planting cotton on 80 inch spaces instead of 40. But with those, those uh, that fertilizer feeding those bugs and uh, everything in the soil, they're projecting to make just as much or more cotton with half the plants than they are what we're doing. I'm, I just, I want to see how it does before I go and take a big step like that. Cause like I said, it's really expensive. After that, that could be coming into to play more often in this area. They're doing it in Australia. It's actually an Australian uh, fertilizer and chemical dealer that I believe is, is showing them all this stuff and they're taking advantage of that while they can. So uh, we'll see what plays out in the next few years. Awesome. And you know, I'm glad that you mentioned um, getting more cotton with less seed. Um, sorry, like takes my brain a minute because I'm definitely not familiar with all of this, but uh, Farm Bureau reported that American cotton farmers are expected to plant 12.08 million acres this year, which is a 12% decrease from 2019. Um, are the cotton farmers here on the High Plains and you yourself uh, expecting that kind of decrease, even though you are implementing uh, new things into your farm? Um, <laughs> since it's my first year, I'm planting as much as I can. I got a, I've got my FSA loan that I've got to pay off as well as make enough money to support myself for a year. But, uh, a lot of rotation is going on. People, uh, and this impacts cover crops also. You plant wheat on half a pivot and then cotton on the other, and the next year you've got cover for your cotton. You're, I mean, overall you're planting less acres of cotton and it's working out for the better. But uh, I don't know, it just, I know my dad's trying to cut down on his acres and I, I don't know what other farmers are doing. I'm sure all the young guys like myself are trying to get as many acres as they can. Like I said, that with the prices they are now, 
you got to plant. You can't leave a bunch of land, uh, leave a bunch of land fallow. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what all these other guys are doing. It's hard to keep up, keep track of what they're doing, I mean. So you mentioned that you're kind of involved a little bit with your FSA office, with everything that's been going on with COVID-19 and with the uh, coronavirus food assistance program, all of that kind of coming into play right now. Um, we still don't know, you know, too much about that or how it's really going to look or impact farmers and to what extent. But um, you told me earlier that you are definitely going to look to try to see help with your FSA office. So can you just tell me a little bit more about the kind of help that they provide to you and to farmers out here on the High Plains? Well, uh, for first year farmers, they have a program for us where we get low interest rates. Like I'm thinking I'm sitting at a 3% interest rate for nearly $150,000 loan. They do stuff like that. And uh, then RCF's office, they have programs where they'll help pay to put drip systems in. And, and if you don't know what drip is, it's a much more conservative, I'm not conservative, but uh, it's the best way to water your crop and conserve the water that we have. Um, I know a lot of people are putting it in if they have the water to do it. But uh, those are just a few of the examples. And uh, I've heard that our president's trying to do more or less the stimulus checks for farmers and ranchers through FSA, so uh, that that could be something that's possible, but we won't know until until it happens. Of course, and you've got kind of a positive outlook here, just kind of a see what happens, can't do nothing about it. And do you think that maybe more farmers might need to have that kind of outlook with the unknown quickly approaching us? Uh, I know a lot of my buddies are, and don't take me wrong, I'm, I'm pretty stressed out about what's going on and how this year's looking, but my stress level isn't anything compared to some of my buddies, but the way I see it is whatever happens, happens. You got to take it one day at a time. It's, it's really out of our control. We can't control the weather. Um, everything we control is on us, so just make the best of what you can and do it right instead of just... I don't know, just letting it go. Alrighty, again, folks, it's Braden Campbell, one of my good friends out here in Lubbock. We're actually in Floyd Data on his land right now. But um, Braden, thanks so much for having me on the tractor and getting to see a little bit of what you do out here and educating me a little bit on cotton and all that goes into it. Thanks for coming out here, Ashton. Miss being around everybody at school and it's really neat seeing how all this podcast business runs. Thanks again to Braden for allowing me to come onto his tractor today with him and show me a little bit of behind the scenes. Being a livestock girl, I definitely got to know a little bit more about cotton and crops. So that was really interesting. Now let's kick it on over to Ray with the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. 
There is not a vehicle made over the past 25 years that I am aware of that does not have an in-tank fuel pump. It is usually found attached to the sending unit for the gas gauge. What many do not realize is that the electric fuel pump is designed to use the fuel as its coolant. For this reason, it is important to keep the fuel tank over one quarter full or more. If the fuel volume is much below that, the pump will run hotter and suffer a substantially decreased service life. This does not mean that the tank always needs to be full or that you could never run it down below one quarter. But those that are always driving around near empty will be replacing the fuel pump unnecessarily. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles. All right. Well, again, a big thanks there to Ray. Do check out his podcast, Idle Chatter. Head to globalagnetwork.com and you can listen to all of his past podcast episodes anytime right there. But Ashton, it sounds like you've had a very exciting day. We certainly appreciate you getting out there, getting in the field. I mean, this is literally week two for you. So uh, you've definitely done a good job of getting right in there and getting things done. Thanks. It was nice to get out of the house and see a familiar face. So... Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ashton, you also, I've got to make a good plug for you here. You're managing our social media accounts at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you got to post some extra additional behind the scenes looks from today's interview. Is that right? Yes, I got some photos from today's interview, and I also posted on our Instagram and Facebook stories and had a couple people try to guess on what we would be talking about today. Fantastic, folks. Go ahead and make sure you're following us because I think Ashton's going to be doing this quite a bit more here in the future. With that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.